Yeah, well, let, let's dig in. Hello, everybody. I'm David Cooks, and I tell you what. We know that paralysis can take on many forms. It can be physical like mine. It can be anything you put your mind to. And what we try to do is feature stories that go from difficult places to fulfilling purpose. What seems impossible I am so excited to have Hector Colon with us today. Not only is he a businessman, but he's also a servant in the community. It may knock you down, but don't let it stop you. It was the hardest decision I ever made in my life. I had the potential of becoming a, a multi-world champion. I, I beat many uh, multi-world champions, and I gave it up. But that same dedication, determination, and discipline. It took me to be a champion boxer is the same dedication, determination, and discipline that I apply into my life, striving for excellence in everything that I do. I got that drive uh, from boxing. Got so much to give, a lot of life to live. You must go from paralysis to purpose. Get your pen and paper out. Yeah. I'm taking notes. Paralysis to purpose. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast. Make sure you review this podcast, like this podcast, and share this podcast. You know what I'm going to say. I am the luckiest guy alive. I get to sit here and interview some of the most intriguing and inspiring people in the world. And today is no exception. We have a guest right here from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. See, there are a lot of great things from Milwaukee. People just don't know. Um, and he is the CEO of Lutheran Social Services of Wisconsin and Upper Michigan. Uh, he is a speaker and an author of a great book called My Journey from Boxing Room to Boardroom, The Five Essential Virtues for Life and Leadership. I am so excited to have Hector Colon with us today. Not only is he a businessman, but he's also a servant in the community and does a lot of great things for a lot of people. So I think you're in for a great, great episode today. Get your pen and paper out because I'm sure he's going to share some things with you that will help change your life on your road from paralysis to purpose. Hector, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, David. So happy to see you again and very happy to be here with you. Yeah, well, yeah, I think the last time I was talking with you, your book was not, it was in your mind or on the piece of paper, but it had not been published. And and I told you, I thought we would get together uh, at some point once you had your book out. I tell you what, I had a chance to to read through it and it is a great book. It's, expire, it's inspiring, it's informative, it's instructive. And uh, we're gonna use that a little bit as our platform today as we talk about some of the things you've done. So let's start with, your childhood, um, and how you got involved in boxing. Yeah. So both of my parents are from Puerto Rico. I was born here on the near south side of Milwaukee. And I recall when I was about nine years old, I, I went to go uh, play baseball with some of the kids. And and uh, there was one uh, particular individual that didn't want people uh, with the color of my skin in the neighborhood. And he called me a spick, uh, the N-word, and, you know, hit me in the face, and I came home with a bloody nose, and and then I saw my father, and my father said, what happened, get the basol, and I told him, and he said he was going to take me to the gym so that I can learn how to defend myself. I wasn't interested in boxing at the time. I, I wanted to follow my father's footsteps and play baseball, 
But uh, I go to the boxing gym and I see these big guys and I'm intimidated. And my my coach, Shorty, uh, Israel Acosta, who's really a giant uh, in my life and a giant in this community, puts me in front of the mirror and starts showing me some boxing combinations. And he told my, my, co my, my father, he said, your son is a natural. He's going to become a champion. And uh, that, that boosted my confidence, and he was right. I ended up becoming a seven-time national champion, competing all over the world with the United States national boxing team. And in 1992, I was favored to go to the Olympics in Barcelona, Spain. I was 19 years old. I was so excited. I, I was already looking at that gold medal. I was already looking at that multimillion-dollar contract. And for the most important opportunity of my life, I was not focused, mind, body, and spirit of what was in front of me. And I was distracted and I lost. And I was truly devastated. I wasn't hearing from the big time promoters about making the millions of dollars. And uh, I was hurt and I was searching. And on December 27, 1992, I bought my first Bible. And on that day, I gave my life to Christ. And my life has been changed ever since. Six months later, I fight Jesse Brasino, the guy that robbed me of my dreams. And this time I knocked him out uh, on cable television in the first round for the US championship. Promoters started coming back, uh, but I put it through a year of prayer and discernment. And it was the hardest decision I ever made in my life. I had the potential of, of becoming a, uh, a multi-world champion. I, I beat many uh, multi-world champions and and I gave it up. And um, But that same dedication, determination and discipline, it took me to be a champion boxer is the same dedication, determination and discipline that I apply into my life, striving for excellence in everything that I do, whether it be as a husband, as a father or as a CEO. I got that drive uh, from boxing. Mm. And what were those three D's again? You said dedication, dedication, determination, and discipline. And uh, those are the three D's, man. You need every one of those when you're a boxer, when you're striving. When you're a boxer, you want to be the champion. Nothing less but number one is ever good enough. And you have to really apply yourself. And then once you once you obtain the championship status, you want to stay there. And somebody's always trying to get you, make sure they can bring you down. So you learn that in the sport of boxing. And uh, and I'm very thankful for the experiences I had in boxing. Tell us about your early days, because I think sometimes people confuse um, being successful and winning, um, that, that there aren't losses or there aren't difficulties along the way. And yeah. so on your way to seven times being the best in the world, yeah. You had some hurdles and some things, uh, especially early on. Could you talk a little bit yeah. about, about that concept? Yeah, so I I lost my first fight, and uh, I wanted to give up. I, I didn't think it was that fun. You know, I was crying, and, uh, and so I told my coach, I said, you know, I, I don't really like this. I told my father, I, I didn't want to box anymore. My my coach said, come on, champ, You just this is your first fight. You have natural abilities you can become a champion. And uh, so I fought my second fight 
and I lost again. And this time I really wanted to give up because here there's this intense fear that you have when you enter that that ring. I don't care if you're Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield, or Hector Colon. You're going into that ring with fear, and there's nothing fun about that. Then you lose, and then you cry, and you just feel humiliated. So I, I was like, there's nothing fun about this. But my coach came to me, and he said, don't be a quitter, champ. Don't be a quitter. We can become a champ. Let's do this again, champ. And it was the way he said it, he, he with this overwhelming confidence and belief in me, and um, and I listened to him. So the third fight, um, I I I won, and uh, and I ended up becoming a seven-time national champion. So it's it's that confidence that Shorty, that giant, instilled in me, that belief he had in me. Uh, but then you know the hard work it takes to become a champion and to rise to that level uh, at that elite level, you have to work really hard. Yeah. That means you're waking up in the morning early, you're working out in the afternoon, you're working out several hours in the evening, you're going to sleep early, you're you're waking up early, eating right, you know, so you have to really sacrifice a lot if you want to become that champion. Wow. A couple of things that I've, I found interesting that uh, your trainer calls you champ. Yeah. He called you champ from the beginning. And yeah. what... That had to have some sort of impact on you. He didn't see you as a struggling person. He didn't see the fact that you lost the first two fights. He was seeing the potential in you. Um, that's what coaches do, right? I mean, coaches in general do that. One of the things that you mentioned in your book was that we all need a coach. And I believe that wholeheartedly in order for us to, to be champions in life, I think we need a coach to help us with our blind spots, motivation, those types of things. You know, you said he was a giant in your life. Now, how how was how was that manifested through him? Yeah. Oh man, Shorty, this giant. He, you know, he would sacrifice his nights for me. I, I would come home, I'd play baseball, and I'd come to the gym like at seven o'clock at night. Everybody's gone, and Shorty's there waiting for me uh, to train. You know, he would sacrifice his weekends for me, his vacations, and also took me into his own home where he loved me and fed me and made sure that I could be a champion both in and out of the ring. This guy spent lots of time with me to help me get to the, to, to help me uh, become a champion. All right. So, um, so he was instrumental in, in making sacrifices. Um, could you just touch upon a little bit of, you talked about the sacrifice that you had to make in order to compete uh, at a high level. And what role does sacrifice play in success, not just in the boxing ring, but just in life in general? This is the virtue I talk about in my book about magnanimity. And um, this is really about those daily habits, those daily rituals, those daily routines that uh, you need to have in order to be bring your best self. For me in the boxing ring, you got to bring your best self to the ring because your opponent is trying to outwork you. And so I would wake up every morning below zero degrees. It didn't matter. I was out there running. In fact, I would talk to myself and I would say my fiercest competitor who was Vernon Forrest at the time. He lived in Georgia. I would tell myself there's no way he's running in below zero degrees or the six inches of snow. And, and uh, I'd work out in the afternoons. I'd work out at night. 
Um, I did a lot of self-reflection and meditation throughout the day. I I used to see the greatest fight on, on TV and I learned, I totally immersed myself. My daily habits, my daily rituals and daily routines were helping me bring my best self every time I entered into that ring. And I love talking about this virtue because that virtue is so important for life and leadership. If you wanna bring your best self to your family, to your community, to your job, you know, I'm gonna ask you, what are your daily habits, your daily rituals and your daily routines? Are they the right things that are gonna help you achieve your best self? You know, and, you know, think about taking a mind, body, spirit approach. Maybe it's prayer and meditation or a daily service and reflection and, and mindfulness and, and, and working out and, and taking care of your mind and reading uh, professional development. I think we have to do all of those things in order to be our, bring our best selves to our jobs, to our families, to our communities each and every day. And I learned that in boxing. Yeah, there are so many of these qualities and virtues that you learned in the sport that definitely transfer, that make you successful in life. And that was one of them. So you said you came to a fork in the road. You had a lot of success. You were doing well. Um, but there was a, a conflict you had. You, you, your faith was stirred and you had had an, a new relationship with God through Christ. And you had a you, boxing is a tough sport you're, you're trying to hurt the other guy um you're putting your body through all these things and and you came across a scripture that says your body belongs to god and you're wrestling with all of that yeah. um you made a decision to walk away from boxing mm -hmm. how difficult was that decision and what went into what what all went into that beyond the things that i already mentioned yeah it was really that uh so i felt this love this joy this peace that the world wasn't providing me and uh, I just wanted to immerse myself. And, uh, and really, as I read lots of scripture, I came across uh, 1 Corinthians chapter six, and it talks about how we're temples of the Holy Spirit, what we do to ourselves, we do unto God. And I was always a good sportsmanship, but I knew I was going in there to hurt the guy and knock the guy out. And I also know that it's inevitable in the sport of boxing, you will get hurt. We, we see it. We see the effects that boxing has had on some of the greatest. And, and, and it's, it's, nothing, it's nothing nice. And so that scripture really convicted me. And because I wanted to take my faith so seriously, here I am 19, 20 years old with the potential of signing a lucrative contract, with the potential of helping my mother, my friends, my community, with living my dreams through my coach, Israel Acosta. There was so much to look forward to, but that conviction in my heart uh, was deep. And it was so hard. It was so hard. Every time I would see Shorty, tears, like, like hard tears, just bawling, because I felt I let him down. I felt I let my community down. I felt I let my mom down. You know, I always told my mother, don't worry, man. We're going we're gonna to be set. I'm going to take care of you. We're going to have a nice house and this and that. And, and then I decided to give it up, you know, right when I didn't even reach my prime. So it was very difficult. Yeah. Well, you know what, though? I think that sacrifice paid off. You, you, left, uh, you left the ring and, and 
um, I you you always wanted to be involved in uh, the medical in, in in the healthcare uh, area, and so it was time to go to school, right? You you decided to to do some schoolwork. So uh, you you left the you left the uh, boxing ring and began to pursue an education. And uh, physical therapy was your first love and thing that you wanted to work with. Um, take us down your the education path. Uh, yeah. take, take us through take us through your academic journey, uh, and then we'll go from there into your professional your your current professional life. Yeah. So you know, I uh, I didn't take school very serious in high school. You know, because I wanted to be a professional boxer. I was traveling all over the world. I I used to get tutors and they used to kind of help me with my homework. And my teachers were kind of easy on me, you know, with 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 all that. And um, but I knew I, I wanted to go back to school at some point, but I was focused on becoming a professional boxer. And so when I when I um, quit boxing, I said I have to go back to school. So I take uh, an entrance exam, started at MATC. And I scored embarrassingly low. I had to take basic arithmetic and like study courses. And right away, I told him, I said, I told the counselor, this is ridiculous. This is too easy. And she said, I'm sorry, that's where you tested. You, those are the classes you have to take. And so I started uh, taking, I took that. And, and then um, that next semester, I actually stopped a semester because then I just totally immersed myself into the church and left everything and uh, and left boxing. And then, then I came back to school and I told the counselor, I said, I don't care where I tested, I need to take regular courses because I, 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 I don't have any time to waste. I don't know how I did it, but I was able to convince her and I ended up taking regular courses. And I remember taking anatomy and physiology. And at the time I started wanting to get in PT, physical therapy, but I learned the wait list was so long and it was a two-year degree. Then I learned about occupational therapy. So I said, if I'm going to wait this long, why don't I just get a bachelor's degree? And uh, I like the occupational therapy. So I remember taking my first anatomy and physiology uh, exam. I studied hard and, you know, I got a, and it's a really hard class and I get a B minus and I'm happy you know, I, I like, wow, you know, I, that's pretty good. This was a hard test. And so I asked my colleague, you know, my the person that was sitting next to me, we were trying to build a relationship. And I asked him what he got. And he looked at me kind of upset, almost like as if, what are you asking me this for? And But he told me, he said, I got an A. So then he asked me what I got. And I said, I got a B minus. And he looked at me with this look like, man, first of all, you asked me what I got and you shouldn't do that. Second of all, you just got to be minus and you're happy, <laughs> you know? So, uh, so I remember the way he looked at me and I told myself, um, he's never going to look at me like that again. And, and, and A became my standard, um, ever since that, that point. And I did end up graduating with honors I got a 3.83 uh, in my master's degree, and I was the only student in my class to publish my thesis in the American Journal of Occupational Therapy. It, uh, then I take my first OT entrance exam. I'm smart, right? I'm an honor roll student, and I work so hard. I published this and that, and, and uh, I failed. I failed that darn test. 
and I was devastated. Uh, but then I told myself, okay, I, I can do this. I, I'll study a little bit more. I barely failed. So I studied a little bit more and I failed again. But this time I was wounded, man. I was like, man, I worked so hard. I can't pass this test. I don't pass this test. I'm not going to be able to practice occupational therapy and make a living for me and my family. And I remember at the time seeing Vernon Forrest who I beat twice, become a four-time world champion, multi-millionaire. I saw Jose Antonio Rivera, who I knocked out, become a three-time world champion, multi-millionaire. So I said, what am I doing? I should go back to boxing. Wouldn't it be so much easier uh, to just do that versus I can't pass this test? Then I heard that echo, that voice from Shorty, that giant said, don't be a quitter, champ. Don't be a quitter, champ. You could do this, champ. And finally, I, I studied with the rigor and intensity. It took me to be an honor roll student to pass that test three times. Third time. Third time's a charm for you. I tell you what, uh, what, what a lesson that, you know, you talk about humility and perseverance as part of your virtues. Um, and clearly, uh, you know, when you, when you go into an exam, having published something that no one else has done with a high GPA and you, and you fell it twice. <laughs> Not once you fell it twice. twice. Yeah. Well, that can put you, that can, that can humble you down some, but right. Shorty's words about not quitting. Right. Came to mind. It's interesting how you were able to pull back uh, from your previous experience and pull that, that voice to the forefront and apply it to what you needed at that time. That's right. You know, that's that, that's really great. We'll return to David's conversation with Hector Colon in part two of the podcast in just a minute. David shares his own story in the book Getting Undressed from Paralysis to Purpose. And now it's available as an audiobook narrated by the author. Here's an excerpt from chapter five, in which David recalls how his journey to become a successful corporate banker dressed in tailored suits began quite humbly as a lockbox clerk. A lockbox clerk was not a glamorous position, but it represented a new beginning for me. It was another important step and opportunity as I continued the process of starting my life over. My job was processing insurance premium payments on an IBM 3762 machine for hours at a time, followed by filing the checks alphabetically and numerically. What others may have considered boring and mundane work, I saw as my path into banking. Several key people at the MI Data Center supported me. Richard Phelan, the manager overseeing all of the lockbox operations, made sure I had every opportunity to flourish in spite of my physical limitations and lack of business experience. He helped me understand the significance of the work I was doing and how it impacted the corporation's bottom line. Richard instilled confidence in me and positioned me for success, two keys of an effective leader and coach. Linda Atwell sat across from me as I worked on the IBM 3762. She was easy to talk to, a pleasure to be around, and made me feel comfortable. She treated me like I was another full-time employee, not a part-time high school worker. From the first day I met her, the wheelchair was never an issue for her. Through our many conversations, it didn't take long for trust to build between us. 
The trust led to Linda becoming one of the first people outside of my family and high school friends with whom I openly discussed what it was like to be in a wheelchair. It was my opportunity to make someone else comfortable with me and break down another barrier. Linda and I became good friends. As much as I appreciated the lockbox job, my goal was to make it to the M&I Bank headquarters in downtown Milwaukee, where Jim Wigdale worked. I wanted to wear three-button suits like he did, to have lunch with clients on the sixth floor in the executive dining room, to be where the action was. In the meantime, I made sure I met the quotas for the number of batches completed each day and got checks filed efficiently and accurately. My hard work and attention to detail did not go unnoticed. In the spring of my senior year, I was awarded a four-year summer internship at the bank's headquarters. My confidence was at an all-time high. My plan to become a banker was on track. I was heading downtown. That was David Cooks narrating a portion of his book, Getting Undressed from Paralysis to Purpose. This inspiring and award-winning 2018 release is now an audiobook available to purchase and download. Now, let's get back to part two of Knocked Out, Life Lessons from Boxing, with David and his guest, Hector Colon. So you, you get your exam, um, finally you passed and everything, and it's time to go to work. Um, in this process of getting your academics and, and starting to look for jobs, um, you met your wife. Mm-hmm. You didn't know at the time she was gonna be your wife, but you, when you met her, you're like, I think that's gonna be my wife. Um, can you talk about the relationship you had with her during some of these these times where you had really hard choices to make? Yeah. So, um, you know, when I gave up boxing, I ended up going to the church and and the first I wanted to meet a good woman. And the first woman I saw was my wife. You know, she was in the choir and started to try to develop a friendship with her. And right away. Uh, she doesn't admit this now, but she said this, uh, who's this punk from the street? I don't know who he is. And they didn't want nothing to do with me. Uh, but, you know, she saw I was taking stuff seriously and we got to know each other, became friends and and uh, we really connected. Uh, she's a beautiful woman um, and she comes from a great family, uh, has always had great faith, uh, great wisdom. And, uh, and I'm blessed to be with her, you know, there was a time where I was so immersed uh, in my school because I was trying to make up for lost time and I want to, you know, have a good career. And, and, uh, and she was worried that I wasn't taking my faith as seriously as I was when I first met her. And she did break up with me and I was devastated. It was a, it was a big blow. Uh, a little bit of a low blow, actually. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was hurt because not only for her, but I loved her family. She has a great family. I loved her father so much and her mother and her, and her siblings. Uh, it was a great family to be a part of. I saw stability and, you know, I come from a broken family. I didn't see that with, with them. And uh, I love that. And I thought that was great. And uh, so I was hurt. And uh, she broke up with me and it was about a year we were broken up and then she wanted to come back. Then I, then I kind of pushed her away a little bit <laughs> and uh, I wasn't sure that I wanted to get back with her. And, and uh, it would have been a huge mistake if, if my pride would have set in and, and not allowed us to come back. So I'm blessed with my wife. We have two beautiful children. 
Uh, we've been married for 21 years and um, she's, she makes me uh, a better person each and every day. Um, you aren't always the CEO of Lutheran Social Services of Wisconsin and Upper Michigan. What were your steps along the way? And, and could you talk a little bit about um, as a child, you faced some discrimination, and even as an adult uh, in the on the academic in the academic world, and also in the corporate world, you got there and you was surprised by some of the things that were said and and that. And can you talk about that? Yes, yeah. So you know, I I I always worked really hard, and it was always very ambitious. And uh, really, what I wanted to do is right when I graduated from college. I wanted to get some experience and have my own business. I specifically wanted a contract with hospitals to provide therapy to Spanish speaking clients, but I didn't get an opportunity to work in a hospital because those uh, the job market was saturated. So I ended up working in mental health. I also was interested in mental health uh, because of my sister. Uh, she has severe, she has severe persistent mental illness. Uh, had co-occurring addiction uh, for many years up until my daughter was born, which is 18 years ago, uh, where my mother told her, she said, if you don't, if you don't stop taking um, uh, drugs and start adhering to treatment, you're not going to be able to see Angelis. And of all the things, that's what did it for her. You know, she went years in and out of jail, years in, in and out of uh, the psychiatric hospital, suicide attempts, fights with my mother, all in front of me when I was a little young boy. And uh, to see her change um, after uh, my daughter was born is, is a true example of temperance and self-control that she exhibited when it mattered a lot uh, for her. So I was always passionate about mental health as well. And so I started off as a mental health clinician providing individuals with severe persistent mental illness with therapy. But within three months, I became the assistant director of that community support program for people with mental illness. And I've been in management and leadership ever since. So pretty much all of my career, I've been in management and leadership. And I always did want to become a, a CEO. From I started at Wisconsin Correctional Services, but I, then I went to the United Community Center. And that's where I'm a product, uh, having box there, played baseball there, growing up there. Uh, UCC has played a huge role in my life. And I was the associate executive director there uh, overseeing the elderly programs. And right away, I wanted to become uh, the executive director there. And uh, Walter Sava retired, but then Ricardo Diaz uh, came in, very experienced professional, a mentor and friend. And he became the executive director and I learned a lot uh, from him uh, while I was there, but it was a great place to be because I consider myself a product uh, of UCC. Then I branched out of, into government. Um, so worked for Mayor Barrett as a lobbyist. And my experience with Mayor Barrett, I was so thankful. He gave me this opportunity and I met with one of the aldermen and uh, he said, Hector, I saw your resume, you're a nice guy, but you're not qualified for this position. This is one of the most important positions we have in city government. And I don't know what Mayor Barrett is thinking. And I said, hey, let me, let me tell you a little bit about my skills and how I feel they're transferable and how I feel I can be effective. Hector, 
are you a Republican? I, I said, no, but I'm independent. Uh, and I have friends across the aisle and uh, I can work with anybody and I can be persuasive and ought to bring people in. Hector, you're not qualified. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know what Mayor Barrett is thinking. So I told him, I said, I know you know Ricardo Diaz, could you please talk to him and tell you a little bit about myself? And the next day he saw me, he said, good luck. But it challenged me <laughs> to luck. make sure that, that I didn't let Mayor Barrett down, who gave me this wonderful opportunity. And I proved to myself that I can do a great job. And while I was there just by myself, I was able to provide pass more legislation in just one year compared to a team of lobbyists, four to five over two sessions combined in that one year. And it was about relationship building. It was about being passionate about the issues that I was talking about. It was, it was being willing to work across the aisle and know who to go to, who was influential. So to me, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, very hard at all. Then I went to work for Governor Doyle. And Governor Doyle gave me an opportunity to be the director of economic development for WIDA, second largest bank by way of assets in the state of Wisconsin. Here I am, an occupational therapist. I don't have a, an MBA. I don't have a finance background. I don't have a banking background. And yet here's this incredible opportunity uh, to lead the economic development efforts. And I'm so thankful uh, to Governor Doyle, so thankful uh, to Mayor Barrett. When I was at WIDA, along with my team, uh, I had a great team, I learned quickly. So I really stressed myself. And part of uh, boxing is facing your fears, the virtue of courage. So in boxing, I said, there's no greater fear than entering into that ring. I don't care who you are, Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield, you go into that ring with fear. But what gives you the confidence is that dedication, that determination, that discipline, that self-preparedness that gives you the confidence to enter into that ring. That's how it is with life. Um, you, you mentioned temperance. And how is it that boxing, um, it just seems like an almost like an oxymoron to say oh. that boxing taught me temperance. Oh, man. Help us. So <laughs> Boxing, man, you better learn self-control and temper. So when you're in that ring and you get hit, you can't get mad and lose control and, and react. You have to stay composed and, and, and strategize and see how you're not going to get hit again. And, and you have to have a lot of composure. Or, you know, before the fight, there's a lot of smash talking and the individual is going to try to get to your head. You got to be relaxed and, and don't let that get to your head and tell yourself, I'm going to take care of this in the ring. Or if you're in the ring and somebody hits you with a low blow and it hurts, but the referee doesn't see it, you can't retaliate with a low blow because now the referee might see it and you would get disqualified. So you learn temperance, like, like almost no other virtue in the sport of boxing, because if you don't have it, you are not going to be successful. So the other thing that, um, as I read through your book and you, all these places that you went to and worked worked at, um, you almost were, became like a workout specialist. You were <laughs> turning turning businesses around um, and creating opportunities that way. Ultimately, you ended at Lutheran Social Services, a Catholic person running a Lutheran organization. Um, 
And one of the underlying themes in all of the positions that you took was the need to build trust. You talked about relationships before. Um, when you got to Lutheran Social Services, you had to make some very difficult decisions, mm-hmm. which is part of lead, being a leader. Um, can you walk us through um, the, the, the making those decisions and how you were able to build um, trust and build consensus, so to speak, uh, within the organization to cause it to move forward? Yeah, first, first my journey to the CEO, another two. So two major opportunities that I did not get that I thought I would get. And um, then LSS comes to my lab, uh, get approached by John Howman, the board chair and says, everywhere I turn, people say, I need to speak with you. Would you be interested in um, having a conversation about the CEO position? So I said, sure, we hit it off really well. He tells me now he went home to his wife and he tells her if this were my company, I would hire Hector on the spot. Unfortunately, it wasn't his uh, company and it took a six month process. Midway through that process, I almost was a coward and removed my, my, my name from the list for fear of rejection a third time. And I was, because I learned that I would be the first non-Lutheran, non-pastor, non-Norwegian to become the president of Lutheran Social Services. And I said, there's no way they're gonna hire me. And I was fear of being rejected. So I, uh, I talked to the HR consultant and the board chair and they encouraged me and I'm so glad I decided to move forward because um, it's been, this is one of the best organizations in the country. I feel so humbled and honored to have been accepted uh, to lead this organization, and it is absolutely outstanding. But we had lots of challenges. We, we created a team. This team is absolutely outstanding, humble servant leaders, serving one another. We also, this ain't a top-down approach. So I started off by asking five questions. It is the answers and insights to those questions from the colleagues at LSS, the board members that transform uh, this organization since I've been here. It's been looking at three years before I got here, I'm going into my fourth year now, but it's a $12.4 million turnaround. Um, can you talk about the importance of asking questions as a leader, as a leader, as, a, or as someone that may coach people? Um, what's the significance of asking questions and getting others' inputs? I think it's so critical. Um, I think uh, leaders need to do more of it. Um, You know, the colleagues that surround you, the people that surround you, they are really smart. And you have to get their ideas, their input, their insights. Um, And it's very important to do that, not only because they're smart Mm -hmm. and they know the answers, but also because of engagement and how do you co-create a vision, a future, a strategy, along with the staff. So I don't, I don't see myself as CEO, where my job title says I create the vision, the direction, the strategy, and my team executes that. I prefer to co-create that uh, with my team, not only with the top leadership team, but with the organization, because that's where you get true engagement. That's where you get true buy-in. That's where you get brilliance and talent. Um, that the organ- you're tapping into that talent that the organization has 
And it's really core to a servant leadership approach. And I gravitate towards that because I learned that from my mother. So here my mother is uh, working two and three jobs when my father left to Puerto Rico and never complained. Now, once did I hear my mother complain, not only did she not complain, but she would serve my sister who had severe persistent mental illness and addiction. She would serve her friends. She would bring in people with mental illness, the homeless, did everything a paid case manager would do for these individuals without receiving a dime. And then I saw Shorty on how he served me, spent his nights, his weekends, took me into his own home. And, uh, and the difference these two individuals made in my personal life. So I gravitate towards that where I want to serve others. I want to know how well they're doing. I want to empower them. I want to learn from them. I want to lean on them, you know, and through that process, we can become stronger together. It, what, what's the relationship between, you call it co-creating, servant leadership, and diversity and inclusion? Mm. How, how are they interrelated? Are they related? Yes. So diversity and inclusion uh, is, is very important. You know, and I'll, I'll step back and tell you a little story here at LSS. So there were some people that were very upset that I was hired. And uh, one person even came up to me and said, you know, Hector, this is going to take some getting used to. You're the first non-Lutheran, non-pastor, non-Norwegian. You're a manipulator. This is going to take some time to get used to. So I was okay with all that first stuff, but I didn't understand the manipulator part. <laughs> so I challenged him with that. And the, the manipulator thing turned into being persuasive, which is two totally different things. But I, um, I was bothered by that, and I was bothered by some uh, within the organization. I considered leaving the organization. It would have been a huge mistake because as a whole – this organization has embraced me. The ELCA has embraced me. They've invited me to give sermons and, and I, have feel, I have felt welcomed by this organization. So it would have been a huge mistake, but um, I did feel a little bit of that, of those challenges coming in. Equity, diversity, inclusion, I put it within the lens of the scripture, uh, within the lens of the values of this organization. We are one body and many parts. You need each of those parts to, to operate as a whole. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, all of those, there's tons of scriptures that, that show us how, uh, why equity, diversity, inclusion is not only the right thing to do, uh, but the smart thing to do. And sometimes people don't entirely understand uh, what it means. We'll return with part three of my conversation with Hector Cologne in just a minute. This is David Cooks, pressing pause to say thank you for listening to Paralysis to Purpose. If you recently discovered my podcast, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Here in season two, we drop a new episode every Tuesday morning. There's also a list of past episodes you want to check out, like my conversation with Dr. Sherry Hall. Her journey from Paralysis to Purpose was nothing short of remarkable. I even call it miraculous. During episode five, entitled Looking for Love, Sherry recalled the night she and her medical school classmates celebrated their graduation 
and anticipated their residency placements. Even though it was a jubilant occasion, beneath her smile, Sherry was feeling hopeless, scared, and alone. That's when something unexpected happened. We had something called Super Night, and it was just a beautiful coming together of everybody. There's all this anxiety and tension and excitement. Where are we going to go? What, what match place are we going to you know, become? What specialty are we going to go into? Well, we did a big performance. Of course, I'm up there on the stage with a bunch of my colleagues. And, and, and one of my friends during medical school, Jimmy, he and I were doing a parody on anatomy class. And at the end of the show, uh, Jimmy comes up to me and... You know, we've just done this great piece together on the stage. We're all sweaty and everything. And he's like, you know, Sherry, um, there's a lot of people in our class, I think, who would love to say something to you, but they're probably not. So I'm going to. He comes up to me and he gives me a big hug, like a genuine, loving, nurturing hug. And he says, I just want you to know that you being here made my life and the life of so many other people easier and better going through medical school. We could not have done this without you here, without you present, without you bringing, you know, your Sherry Hall flair, so to speak. And what's amazing about that moment, David, is that at the very moment I was thinking of ending it all, I cannot go through this torture in my head one more day one more minute, here comes this man. He comes up and he touches me, but he touched me emotionally and spiritually. And he let me know that while I may have not felt that there was purpose and plan to my life, there was a much bigger purpose and plan to my being there that I had no knowledge of whatsoever. I did do some good for the people with whom I came in contact on a daily basis. I did shine some light into someone else's life despite going through my own suffering and mental torturing. That was Dr. Sherry Hall from episode five in season one. When you get a chance, make sure you listen to the rest of that conversation. I was truly amazed and inspired by her story, and I think you will be too. For now, let's get back to Knocked Out, Life Lessons from Boxing with Hector Colon. Let's talk about where we are right now as, as a country, as a world. At the time of this recording, we are um, in a little bit of a respite, if I can call it that, from the impacts of COVID-19. Uh, that being said, um, and you've been involved in mental health, I'm interested in what you think the post, whenever that, whenever that is, the post-COVID impact will be from a mental health standpoint and how to position ourselves to be ready for that. Yeah, first of all, pre-COVID, um, mental health and addiction is, is a pandemic already. Uh, one in four of us experiences a mental illness. Too many people are dying each and every day uh, from addiction. So I would say there is a pandemic and we do have a crisis uh, with addiction, uh, even pre-pandemic. So now pandemic, it heightened uh, anxiety, depression, domestic violence, um, and, and mental illness. It even got exacerbated. And so that unfortunately created a lot of business 
for LSS. And uh, we provided those individuals uh, with the services to help them achieve health and well-being during this crisis. And it was real hard. So the pandemic hit. I remember first week of March, we couldn't see our clients. Within a couple weeks, we pivoted towards telehealth. The staff in this organization, the humble servant leaders, the compassionate individuals that love the people we serve made it happen and pivoted towards telehealth so quickly so that we can continue to see these individuals that needed us now more than ever. But let's also talk about our times right now. Think about the pandemic and the devastation that it has caused to so many people. But how about the civil unrest, the political polarization and the social media and all that comes around that? It is a difficult time on so many fronts. And you were able to, during your time in politics, um, remain an independent but pull from both sides to get it to work together. And, and, I, and I truly do hope that as a country uh, and locally that we can, can get back to partnerships um, because you, that partnership co-creating um, those five virtues that you talked about are essential, um, not only in the boxing ring, as you have shown, and not only in the boardroom, but out in the marketplace. And, and if we can continue to use those, I think we'll all be better. Uh, before we close, um, What's next for you? So I, I wanna grow LSS uh, to be a $100 million organization. Uh, we're 60 million uh, today. I wanna strive very hard to pay our staff commensurate to the value they provide in society. These are individuals that are preventing incarceration. These are individuals that are preventing emergency room visit. These are individuals that are getting people out of government. They need to be paid better. And I wanna work really hard and be very proud of the organization that pays uh, the most in the nonprofit uh, sector. And the other thing is I wanna bring out through the services we provide at LSS, the excellence in the people we serve, bring out their infinite potential. And so there's lots to do at LSS. I, I love LSS. I invite others to love LSS, uh, donors out there that wanna be a part of this family and uh, allowing us to be part of your story. I, I wanna do more of that. Well, that's fantastic. And once again, you're thinking beyond yourself and your organization and serving people because yeah. at the core of who you are is a servant leader. I mean, yeah, that's, I that's at the core of who you are. And, and if you can help somebody else yeah, have yeah. a better day, I know that's what you will do. If, yeah. uh, if people would like to get a hold of you to have you as a speaker, uh, order your book, where can they find out about Hector Colon? Yes, so Hector Colon, mke.com. That's my personal website, Hector Cologne, mke.com. You can book me for your next speaker. That's another thing. I want to elevate uh, my, my keynote speaking. And so I've done several national ones. Uh, and uh, I definitely, if, if you invite me, I'm going to bring out the champion in you. So uh, my website is Hector Cologne, mke.com. You can book me as a speaker. You can purchase my book there too. Uh, my book is also uh, on Amazon. And I just realized today that I, I'm number 41 
of boxing biographies. So I haven't seen myself better than in the 200s. So I'm number 41, but who knows? I'll make the top 10 soon. Hey, that's, let me tell you, that's really great. You know, all of those things that you talked about, the five virtues keep coming back. They apply to your book as well and to you as a speaker as well. You know, the humility, the doing the best you can, the, the not quitting, you know, all of those things become important. So um, we'll, we'll look for your book to get to, to the top 10. Yes. Uh, let me tell you, Hector, it was great having you today. And um, for our audience, make sure you go check out his website and get his book. And if you're looking for a great speaker, he's a really good one. And until the next episode of Paralysis to Purpose, the podcast, I'm your host, David Cooks, reminding you that your ability to endure is always greater than your willingness to endure. You can do anything you put your mind to. Thanks for tuning in to Paralysis to Purpose. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Paralysis to Purpose on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. To purchase his book, visit davidcooksspeaks.com. Be sure to tune in next time for more inspiring conversations with David Cooks. It was about a year and a half into my rehabilitation when my body started to plateau out, my recovery started to plateau out, that I struggled. And that's because I held hope. I held hope that my bladder would come back. I held hope that my glute muscles and calf muscles and plantar flexion in my feet and feeling below my waist and all of this other stuff, I held hope that it would come back. Next time on Paralysis to Purpose. Well, I'd like to welcome Ryan Campbell. And I'd seen so much recovery. I'd had a miraculous recovery. Um, you know, for those listening, I, I now walk. You know, I, I look like I've had a few too many Tennessee whiskeys, but, you know, I walk. And um, I'm incredibly lucky to be where I am. But because I saw so much recovery over that year and a half period, hard work or not, uh, it was, there was no reason that I didn't think it could keep going. And I was very positive in that front. When it stopped, it was tough. To